Hello and welcome to episode number 24 of Earth Repair Radio. We've moved away from location-based communities and so we're always like, you know, working somewhere else, we're meeting friends somewhere else. We're not geographically based, we're not place-based. What other stories of place are embedded here? Like whether that's in deep history, in deep time, like the indigenous stories of place, whether that's more recent histories, and not all of them being celebratory even. What I believe we're seeing is the colonization of our imagination. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we're talking about repairing the city's social fabric with our guest, Riddy DeCruz. Riddy is the co-executive director of the City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon, and is also a facilitator of the Oregon Humanities Conversation Project. Today, we talk about placemaking in the urban environment, and we discuss the City Repair Project's signature intersection repair projects. We also dive into Riddy's perspectives on American culture as a recent immigrant from India. Please enjoy this interview with Riddy DeCruz. Hey, Riddy, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty great, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I was telling you before, we have floods right now in Corvallis, so it's interesting. Everybody's kind of driving around, gazing at the river. I think it's peaking. It's cresting right now. So uh, this uh, spring flood like this, mid-April, is not something we typically get, but it's very interesting to watch watch how it all works. Um, so... You, how long have you been the director of City Repair for? I think a couple of years now. Yeah, maybe two. Okay. So for a lot of people, I mean, City Repair is this thing that a lot of people do know about because it's put forth as one of the most progressive urban permaculture projects in the country, for sure. Um, Maybe the world. Uh, I don't know, but... I would love to hear from you, uh, what is City Repair and what's the work that you do with the City Repair Project? I would say that um, City Repair identifies as a placemaking organization where essentially like making place in a um, in often um, environments that Um, are set up in ways to prevent community building, like actively prevent, not just, you know, oh, there's a lack of community. Um, By design, I think that there's separation and um, a certain kind of productivity and efficiency for capitalism that's built in that doesn't always allow the, 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 the more... Um, fine-grained community building aspects. And so how that translates on the ground um, in terms of interventions or in terms of just implementations is uh, what we're probably most known for is these what we call the street painting or intersection repair projects, um, which were first done by a group of people who just, you know, were moved by the spirit in the moment um, in 1996 and decided to go ahead and paint the streets to reclaim a gathering place um, in in the middle of the intersection. And part of doing that was to remind ourselves that gathering places are really 
essential to the human experience. Um, and because they're not designed for in cities, they're so hard to come by or they're commercialized, like you have to pay and it's not really always affordable. And so um, instead of that, to kind of flip this narrative of a car-based culture in the U.S. and use the streets rather than um, divisions to use them as points of connection. So the street paintings in the middle of intersections symbolize that reclamation of gathering places. Um, and the intention is to revive and re-inhabit um, the modern village, where a village is kind of, you know, um, got that community aspect that makes people feel at home and in place in a sense of belonging, um, not just to the geography, but to each other and the community. Hmm. So, yeah, like turning the neighborhood back into the village, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a way, although I will say that not to romanticize certain aspects of the village, um or to to yeah i i would say to bring how i personally interpret it is to bring that spirit of the village forward into today's time mm -hmm. rather than to go back to this um to any point in time which i think is harder yeah so yeah so paint us a picture you talked about the street murals what what other components like what what is the what is the image and the and the vision that City Repair has put forth here um, that people could expect to see when you come upon one of your projects? Beyond the street paintings, I would say um, that we we encourage various amenities or excuses for people to really inhabit that place. So sometimes you'll see. Uh, little free libraries or earthen benches or little kiosks like kind of um, kind of surrounding that that intersection to kind of give it a sense of um, you know like this this is this this space in between that's been created for you to occupy and inhabit and oh look there's some beautiful raspberries and other edibles that are conveniently dangling in your in your way or oh look there's a sweet little bench where you can sit and observe like some of the intricacies of the painting so it's all of these little gestures of um gestures of of generosity almost or like you know um of gratitude towards and gratitude and benefit towards something other than personal individuated experiences. It's to, it's to the commons, um, to give people this sense of, um, the sense of that, the, that the people that created and maintain and inhabit this place, um, there's a lot of care engendered there. And that it's not a scarcity, but it's there to be shared and experienced by anyone who comes by. And so um, many of the the community sites that we work with, you know, put, end up innovating in all kinds of ways because, again, it's more the method rather than so it's more the process of community building and the conversations and this unfolding realization that we're all inherently designers um, and we're all in like 
by birthright meant to shape and mold the places that we live, work, and play within um, to best suit our own needs um, and reflect the community values um, and desires as well. And so it's that remembering of like, oh, maybe a street painting doesn't always make sense everywhere, but maybe maybe it's a bench or a sacred co- like a sacred altar or um, or even like you know not just looking at the physical realm, also looking at who are the people around and what are their needs? Does it mean helping an elder um, paint their house or, you know, doing a fundraiser for a for an ailing community member? It's just these forms of resiliency that are hyper-local. And once again, like, reflect, I would say, attending of each other, like the, the community network of care that extends um, from the human world and into the more than human world as well, which is how I really kind of encapsulate place in a way. It's like, okay, so what is what does place mean, right? If we are a placemaking organization. Um, and I look at it in, in, in three different layers. One is that I think um, that there's this, this, I, I hold dear the act of tending a, a place, you know, um, that's my way as a um, as an immigrant to this land to feel a sense of rootedness is is by caring for for that land. Um, and then through that process, it engenders a sense of belonging. Um, so then I feel like I have a place here because I'm tending this place. Um, and then the third layer, I would say, is to be humble and aware that, you know, whatever span of time one has been around, like for me, not very long at all, that this place has been home and is home to so many others. And so um, before I or, you know, even as I'm making place here, you know, and finding my own way to be with it, um, what other stories of place are are embedded here? Like whether that's in deep history, um, in deep time, like the indigenous stories of place, whether that's more recent histories, um, and not all of them being celebratory even, you know, there's like, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of brokenness that is kind of and can be encapsulated in land and so I think having that attention to um, to all of those elements um, can then make place making feel a little less like place taking where you're like coming in and doing all these things and changing things fast and a lot of stories get buried. Um, or further invisibilized, and and then there's this other concept that I've been playing with called placekeeping, which is what are the stories that are already marginalized that um, that can be brought to the fore, or at least held and acknowledged as new energy comes in. Yeah. So you've got these intersections with these painted murals and benches that are have beautiful cob relief of different they're almost like sculptures and you have this art embedded into just a crossroads here some of these are almost 
25 years old now at this point, what, what are the impacts? You know, what are the impacts of the community when an intersection becomes a public square, so to speak? Super varied, like any community process. I would say the goal has been that this is just the seed. It's like, oh, once you get, um, well, once you are walking down this path of community building where the awesome and vibrant um, outcome includes a street painting, um, but that's really kind of just almost... Sometimes I say byproduct, I don't mean to dismiss it or, you know, um, diminish it, but I would say it it's the tangible outcome of what I feel is a much more invisible and deeper process of building hyper-local re- resiliency and community building. Like it's, um, it's an excuse in an area where um, folks may not know what to kind of gather around, you know, like it gives some kind of tangible thing to work on. And then this intangible unfolding of community networking happens. So I've seen a vast range of how that impacts people. Um, Of course, some of the just in the process itself, because there's so much community engagement built in, people end up finding out about the neighbor that lived down the just down the block from them that's been there for 20 to 40 years, you know, or um, definitely heard a lot about um, recognizing the needs um, in the community, like an elder who, you know, I would say not just in American culture, like, but in general, sometimes it's really hard to ask for help, um, especially if you don't know one another. And, you know, there's Anyway, I don't want to get into like family, um, like how the family has sense of family can be eroded and there's so much intergenerational separation. But, um, you know, this is this is a way for us to build bridges over so many different walls of separation. Um, You know, we're not always living with blood family around this intersection. And yet um, what is the um, like what are the ways in which we can be in each other's lives that um, that are healthy and, and mutually nurturing? So, um, so many things kind of, you know, spin out of intersection paintings and earthen benches. Um, and sometimes they don't, you know, sometimes a community I've, I've met other communities who are like, nope, we don't want to do anything more. We don't really, we're not really interested in looking at uh, disaster preparedness or community resilience in that sense. We're not really looking at um, extending gardens or, you know, um, sharing X, Y, Z. They're just like, we're doing the painting and that's it. That's our annual commitment. And, you know, increasingly I'm like, well, that's great. I mean, because ultimately, Y'all still have, like, because the process itself is that kind of enmeshing mechanism, um, I think that um, it it's a great, um, it's a great tool for helping people uh, be in community in ways that aren't always um, possible. Because I, I feel like we've moved away from, location-based communities and so we're always like 
you know, working somewhere else, we're meeting friends somewhere else. We're not geographically based. We're not place based. Mm. Right. And so um, inherently within that, this transience, this lack of access to land, like as renters, like what's your long term commitment? And so I feel like in our present day scenario, this tool effectively or has for me at least and I've seen for many others has effectively given ways to root in 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 integrity and in 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 an authenticity that is um that is changeable and mutable over time but it doesn't make it shallow if that makes sense yeah yeah it's really interesting you said you said um that you know it gives people something to gather around where it's not obvious in this society what people have to gather around and having this yearly the yearly ritual of repainting the intersection where each year it may have some different design and different archetypal symbols and every every year you said like these other people they're they're not interested in doing any other of the aspects but they just want to get together i mean just that right there the neighbors getting together and painting the intersection every year and seeing each other and getting out and the kids run around the kids grow up with that it's it's getting to 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 the thing that i'm really interested in and talking with you about, but I feel like we have to build it a little more slowly, right? <laughs> because, I mean, this is, it's like a huge thing. You know, how do we unify a divided culture? But let's mm-hmm. take a step back for a minute because you moved here from southern India, right? From South India, mm-hmm. and you grew up in Bangalore, Kerala, and you were an activist in India before you became. Uh, the city repair director and activist in Portland. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the history of like, because I, I mean, I, you know, I spent a couple of months in India last year and um, I was just really blown away by the, the level of unity that I witnessed that people getting together and their traditions and the celebrations. And it was like just... It made me, when I came back to the U.S., it felt like, wow, this country is a baby. Like, we don't have these old, old, old traditions and people that have been living in place. I mean, there are people that have been living in place in this country, of course, for a long time, indigenous people. Um, but going to India, where where the vast majority of people are living in place and living in the same place that they're... Um, ancestors have lived for generations just made a really different feeling. So I'm curious if you would just take us on a little bit of journey of your history of of how you got here and, and what you've seen that, that gives you the insight to be able to do the work you do today. So I would say growing up in Bangalore, middle class, super apathetic, um and you know um kind of disconnected from many things but yet at the same time grateful for um my like for my parents and for their upbringing with like values of you know um being a good person and i would say that growing up there in Bangalore like that and then experiencing this very intense um, urbanization in the city from, you know, from what I've 
what I've read and heard, you know, there was definitely a national level kind of um, liberalization of economic policy that invited a bunch of um, um, uh, multinational corporations and various kinds of businesses from outside of the country coming in, but then also boosting our economic um, our economic development internally as well. These things kind of colliding and coming into the city and changing the fabric in such a short amount of time, it felt like. Um, and I'm forgetting the numbers specifically, and I can probably send it to you later on in a couple of articles if you want to, if readers want to, or listeners want to read. But um, there's there's been such rampant development, unbridled development in Bangalore, and I'm sure in many other parts of the country where um, the green cover has been reduced like over 80% across 20 years. Um, and then many of the the rainwater catchment systems, the, the ponds, like, you know, we've seen all of these different environmentally destructive ways that development has unfolded. Not to say that that's the only way that development has to unfold but I felt like experiencing that as a younger person growing up kind of shook me to my core firstly because I was apathetic apathetic and didn't really understand where it was coming from and it's still a complex thing it's not like there's one point source for that but um, I think perhaps what I want to highlight the most is this notion of the commodification of life itself because that's what I think really hit me you know where I remember so even in India we were there there was a friend of mine who inspired me to be painting walls so not street surfaces but vertical surfaces as a way to transgress these you know the modern city living where you don't talk to one another and all of this stuff um and and I remember going up to someone in Bangalore and saying, hey, you're, you know, it was this really like poor area, but there were uh, concrete houses, I think. And, um, and asking them, hey, can we put a painting up here? And the utter disbelief that it wasn't, we want advertisers, you know, they were like, why would you, you mean you're just going to volunteer? Like, there was no computing why people would just do something because they cared. You know, um, and that shocked me because I know for a fact that a few years earlier, without this kind of onslaught of um, urbanization and commercialization, that that would have been like, oh, it's kind of weird that you want to paint my wall. But OK, you know, it wouldn't have been unheard of. Um, and so that's something I definitely kind of experienced this just utter shattering of what I believed was a much healthier place fabric but then I also don't want to I don't want to polarize and make build things in duality so I'll say that the development also brought about um, what I think is super healthy um, economic independence or like economic mobility for women in India which is something that's really important to me as well so there's it's very multifaceted and very complicated. But anyway, um, fast forward. And when, one of the ways in which I chose to engage just just because I wasn't understanding like what what was happening um, was in this the, the power of storytelling um, and the power of um, 
of putting the tools of storytelling into the hands of marginalized groups. So I think some of my first um, work, you know, I, I did my undergrad in psychology, sociology, English literature, and general Bachelor of Arts. And I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And and by the time, like, all of these things were coming to a head. And then I was like, you know what? What is truth? So then I was like, okay. And, and what are the stories? What are the stories from 80% of India that we don't hear in the English media? There's so, so many layers of stratification in India um, that I grew up within, you know. And so I'd hear these stories. Oh, 80% of India is farmers and place-based cultures. But that was not my experience living in the city at all. So I did journalism and then went, uh, moved to Mumbai, which is this massive city, um, and was working with um, a nonprofit and participatory technology, like treat, uh, teaching street youth how to build websites, how to, um, how to make a magazine or a newsletter, like basically getting their story out. And then I also worked with um, another really small nonprofit um, and, you know, different level of grassroots, I would say. Um, and working with another really small grassroots organization who worked with sex workers, like super poor sex workers um, and their kids, especially their girl children. And, um, yeah, really, again, believing in the power of one story and how um, how that can really shift uh, people's motivations and goals and impact. And then I would say after that, uh, I just felt a little, I felt like I wanted to deepen um, deepen my storytelling toolkit. You know, I didn't want to just be a reporter because with the reporter, there's definitely like the power dynamics of representation. But I also wanted to meld present day narratives with an understanding of systems coming in and over deep time. And I think that's why I chose to investigate the field of anthropology, um, looking at economic systems. Um, what did, what did nature, like how, how do we conceptualize nature across different cultures, you know, cause that was another issue I was seeing in, in Bangalore and in India that was really, I thought problematic um and kind of spurred me to come to the United States which was um you know I was traveling up in Ladakh which is in the Himalayas and I found I found um there's this one area that had this big sign by a big nonprofit environmental nonprofit and um it said like no this is endangered um habitat for the ground nesting bird that um, and so people clear off and all of this stuff. And I was like, oh, interesting. OK. Um, and then went ended up speaking with some of the people there. And what came up was that these folks who are kind of, you know, they've got their own seasonal round um, and they yak and donkey hurdles um, and their impact on the land is like relatively speaking to people living in the cities is so, so insignificant. And yet they are bearing the biggest burden of, um, I would say, Eurocentric and classist environmentalism um, that's being kind of juxtaposed onto them. Um, and it just 
enraged me because I was just like, whoa, this is so unjust. And where is this coming from? Because, you know, it was like this dysphoria of being in the city and watching all this urban ecology kind of melt away and like oh where is that coming from and then kind of you know running away to more wild spaces to be like oh how do I recover um, more of a sense of harmony and um, fellow like communion and stewardship um, in collaboration with land and then seeing those same um, those that same energy of um of disruption and violence and injustice playing out in the remote parts of India. And I was just like, whoa, (laughs) I need to, I need to like do something with my time and my energy and do something fast. And so I identified many of these things um, affecting us in India within the United States. And that's why I came here was because more than anything, I feel like, um, you know, because we can we can go here and there about like colonization and who colonized what and all of the, all of that. Yes, very important. But present day, what I b- believe we're seeing is the um, the colonization of our imagination mm-hmm. by the U.S. Like people aspire to live an American life, and there's cracks in that perception small cracks but we're all still kind of the trajectory is the same and um and having been on that in on a similar trajectory but also questioning it a lot and that's why I brought up capitalism in the beginning um a little bit but then not knowing how to how to kind of pick it apart um, in an Indian context, like for me personally, my journey has been to come here and see what people are doing here, you know, within it. Like how are people creatively engaging um, these forces that are not just, they're not just in the in the so-called developing world. They're obviously like here as well. So how are people dealing with it here? And I think that's what brought me to City Repair in some ways was like, oh, this is deadening and kind of trampling um, the sense of community and vibrancy and resiliency here as well. And here's one way in which to um, to help heal that that brokenness that we're all that many of us are experiencing. Hmm. Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. A couple of images came up for me when you're talking, just to kind of support what you're saying. Um, you're talking about. Like, well, you're talking about for city repair, creating, you know, shrines and to some degree in the U.S. people, people, uh, you know, shrines are kind of a funny thing. A lot of people would support shrines and other people are like shrines. Like, what is that? Right. And I was just remembering <laughs> we were staying. I was in Bangalore. I spent some time in Bangalore and there was this municipal water tank, you know, this Big, big building. It's right. I was staying in this hotel, and it's on the. I could. I go in the balcony of my hotel, and I'm looking over. I'm like, "What is this thing? It's this big, giant building. That's a municipal water tank, old building, and you know they pump water into this big. It's like a big, giant reservoir encased in a structure. And um, so my friend and I 
We're like, let's go over there. We want to look at this thing. It looks really cool. And there was all these fruit trees. We saw, we could see this whole food forest surrounding this thing. We were like, let's go just kind of walk over and say hi. So we walked over and we, we just came up to the guy who was the manager of it. And we're like, can we look around? Can we do a little bit of filming? You know, we're, we study water. We're from America. And so he let us walk around and, and look around and, you know, they had a, uh, there was a water shrine, of course, next to this water tank. And it had this flowing water and it had some sort of like lingam and different statues. And it was obvious that people had made prayers there. There's daily prayers there every day. And I was just like, mm. yeah, like people come and the people that work there, like they, they pray and honor the water tank with some particular deities to watch over it, like, every day. And people lived there. The people that worked there, it was obvious that people were actually living at the water tank. And um, I was like, wow, you know, where in, where in the U.S. do you find some sort of religious, religious significance at a municipal water system? Right? That's one. And then the other thing is the destruction. I just, I just remember we got on the wrong bus you know, usually there's a direct bus. I was south of town. I went to that Navadarshanam community, and we took an express bus there, so you sort of stay on the main roads. And then I guess we just got on the wrong bus. Instead of the express bus, we went on the one that takes hours longer and stops, goes some really indirect, crazy route. And so suddenly we were in this whole other part. We were in the part where they were, I guess they were mining marble. And, you know, the banyan tree is this sacred tree, and you find these shrines, the banyan tree, and people, like, it's it's like, it's a, even in the middle of the city, it's this very, like, there's this religious feeling that is, you know, put into these trees. And I saw this one place where you could just see the stumps, where they were widening the roads. A lot of times these these roads are lined with banyan trees. It's a completely magical um, thing, you know, these banyan, but but it, it really limits the width of the road. So here I was, I, I was going through this whole area where they had and were cutting down the banyan trees and widening the road. And it, it really so, – so when you talk about that rapid urbanization, that's kind of the story of your childhood is witnessing that rapid urbanization. I have an image in my head that's I, – I, you know, I get it. Like, wow, I could see – it's kind of catastrophic to see because Bangalore was the garden city. I mean, when you go through the parts and the trees still are intact, you're like, oh my, this place is amazing. I mean, huge trees covering the streets and park-like settings. And so to actually see the destruction of that, I can see where that would have pushed you into um, looking for answers, of course. So now that you have made it to the U.S. here, Right to you know the the to to witness the American dream from your own eyes, right? And um, what I mean, and I, I think of this especially now as a really divided country. I mean, there are certainly more than one Americas. There's the urban-rural divide. There's the kind of northern and southern divide. There's people that are completely surrounded by people of their own race all the time. There's people that are, are immersed in hyper-diversity. It's like there's such a varied experience. Um, what, what can we learn, 
You know, like, like what have you learned from city repair? I mean, I mean, how do we, how do we bring this together? I guess my feeling is we are not going to get through the trials of climate change, population growth, resource wars, all the things that are facing humanity right now. Like we need, we need unity if we're going to possibly bring our species through this time here that we are at with all of these lined up factors. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how do we, how do we bring unity? Right. In your experience, like what, what can we do? What can we learn from India? What can we learn from city repair? One of, one of the things that has been coming to me, with that is how much we need to dismantle whiteness. Um, just because I, f- I feel like there's inherently so many different ways in which um, that prevents us from the deeper community building that we want to be a part of. Um, and one of the examples I'll, I'll give you, right, is... This notion that that people are discardable. Like if something happens, if there's something that an individual does that's not in line or, you know, even forget organizationally, but in, in friendships um, and relationships, that if, when something's not working out, that we're just... I've I've found that we're so quick to be like, I'm done and just walk out of it. Right. Like the so in a way, like part of my experience here has been testing the depth of the relationships or like wondering about it. Like, oh, okay, so so it feels really kind of deep for now. But but what does that actually mean in a United Statesian context? Um, And I think. Why I say that I link that to whiteness is because I think it's part of this narrative that um, that the that the individual is kind of trumps everything else. This this personal gain or personal needs um, that that kind of like individuated trajectory that I feel this this country is premised upon at this point. That's the, that's um, the American dream, is you pull yourself yeah. up from your bootstraps based on your own abilities, and anybody can make it if they just work hard enough yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that that's, you know, men, many folks have heard questioning this, and um, especially in social ju- justice circles, because, you know, we know that that's not the case really grateful for the discourse around reparations coming up and hoping for things like truth and reconciliation for indigenous folks. And, you know, but we're still again in the United States, like, whoa, it's just just coming up right now in relation to um, those topics. And then again, in our day to day realities, I just feel like there's, um, there's a there's a sense of um, and maybe this is me, but at the 
in this moment in time, I've been really sitting with this feeling of how it's so hard to get things to stick. Somehow it feels like we're in this intense period of disintegration. Um, and I think disintegration is not inherently a bad thing. But like you, I'm like, what is it going to take for us to kind of come together again? Like what's going to be, I think, a very significantly, I'm hoping, a very significantly different um, common goal and vision. And I and I suspect what that's going to take, at least from my side, um, is for that to be shaped by by folks who have traditionally not been in power. So I'm saying like women, gender non-conforming or gender non-binary and POC, like leadership. Um, because I, I think also that inherently within the system um, that we're, we're seeing this, hopefully what will be a long lasting shift from more white male dominated forms of leadership into different styles that I can't even imagine yet because it's going to emerge, but that space needs to be given and created and fought for, you know, like to, to be like, okay, this is, this is going to be, this is going to be different. Um, and maybe I'll speak to a little bit about what I see different in India and then kind of link that to city repair. (laughs) Well, one thing I just, um, I'm wondering when you, you know when you say dismantle whiteness, right? Well, first off, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about what that what that means and what that looks like, and how does that happen without like a civil war? Mm. You know, I mean, because that's like I understand. Well, the people are really dug in in their views, and obviously, our current political climate and situations just revealing that so much more so i before you go into the next thing i was wondering because i just i'm sure that we have some listeners kind of scratching their heads a little bit and so if you could just just dive into that just a little bit more so we have a clearer picture about what what you mean i'll use it i'll maybe i'll explain it in terms of placemaking is that okay Mm -hmm. um so Part of what I feel is happening is not a recognition, a true recognition of um, of where we are in this current moment and the, how the power dynamics lay out um, and therefore who who's present and and therefore like where we're going like all of those things are interconnected right and i think there's a there's a real lack of trust in leadership that doesn't acknowledge the kind of shadow side or like the underbelly or the the inherent like power dynamics again and um, in the example of placemaking, for example, I'm personally not interested in painting a street intersection with these beautiful colors and having a really, um, 
you know, a kind of like super positive, like, yeah, we're going to get together um, feeling that's not grounded in the pain and suffering that has gone before, which is probably represented in the community around that that area. So in a sense, before we can come together on something, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of and discernment of the differences. Because, you know, in India, we're, we're a subcontinent. There's so much diversity. And it doesn't mean that difference is confrontational. I guess the other thing is like having a sense of kind of knowing and stability and security that there's not just one way to be and being able to hold multiplicity um, and also being able to hold like multiplicity of identities, right? Because it's not just your one thing. It's like all, it's a really dynamic process. But then also being able to hold um being able to hold some of the the sorrow the grief and um and help move that energy forward because otherwise that that grief that's not acknowledged will come out sideways and i think that's what like kind of explodes or the traumas that we are carrying you know you were saying earlier on that the us feels like it's really young and i think that's because of a severe case of cultural amnesia you know, it's just like this not wanting to look beyond a certain point, like shove it behind, suppress it, like not really honoring the full kind of spectrum and breadth of who we are. And that includes, you know, that includes a lot of painful stuff as well. But and, you know, for me as an Indian person, too. Um, but I think being able to hold that and reconcile that as much as we can within our own ancestral lines will help us be like honor not just our ancestry but somebody else's complex ancestry as well um and i think that's when i say dismantling whiteness there's these ways in which you know whiteness again as a narrative is learned and taught and privileged and um there's so many different layers to it so i won't get into all of it, but but the one that again has been ringing really true for me is um, this notion of toxic positivity, where I felt so far in the environmentalist movement, sustainability movement, um, that there's this like, oh, we're so positive, and look at this thing, and this machine that's um, this this machine that's devised by a youth that's gonna you know work on plastic in the Pacific Giant. All of this cool. We need good news. It's not. I'm not hating on the good news, and at the same time, I'm like, we also need to be holding. Um, you know, the catastrophic destructions to indigenous lands and um, the ways in which um, the elders in our own community are just, you know, kind of, I feel, again, as an Indian person, sometimes I'm just like, wow, we're so dishonoring our elders here in the US, you know, in our movement, for example, like, again, this discard, like, oh, you're done with your productive life of like, you know, working as an organizer, and then you're just kind of off to the side, you're outdated. And then also looking at what the young people are coming into, you know, and the higher rates of suicide and depression and anxiety, like, 
all of these complex factors, I think, um, kind of feeling like they're coming to a head. And I am hoping for a shift from the, from the, oh, we, you know, we're just going to keep, we're just going to keep going. And all we need is to paint another street. Like that's not where I come from at all. Like there's, um, there's a way in which I think we need to honor the deeper stories. And I would say another thread of the whiteness that I want to expose is to, you know, people don't, people want a leader, right? Like to show them the way. It's so much easier, so uncomfortable when I have to carve my own path. And I think what I'm seeing too is like over and over when the humanity of a leader comes up, and then people like, whoa, that's an intense betrayal. How could they, like, you know, have these these aspects of them? And again, I'm not saying that we, um, I'm not condoning bad behavior, but I'm like, why are we expecting to be saved by anybody other than ourselves? That's what I keep coming to, you know, I'm like, and, and that's where I feel like non-white forms of leadership is network based. And it's not, it's like col- collective liberation based. It's like my, my um, well-being is so inherently tied up with yours that um, we're just going to be committed to the relationship. And, you know, we go from there because um, if we don't commit to each other and again, like not like we have to stay in toxic relationships or anything like that. But I think to having a certain quality and depth of relationships that I'm still not seeing commonly happen, like where we call each other on our, on our bullshit, you know, it's like, I'm not just here for surface level relationships. Um, We really need to be holding each other accountable if we are to like, do any of this stuff, right? Like that's, I think, what that deeper commitment to one another is because um, learning together what it means to be fully human and accepting that full breadth of humanity, which we have been taught, again, bringing it to whiteness, like that um, there's this this strong desire to be perfect um, and that it's all good. And I think none of that serves us. Um it's it's much more um, it's much more multi-layered and um, and it's definitely not perfect, right? And it's never gonna be. We're never gonna like have clean kind of controlled um, existences if they are to be real and authentic. And so that's that's where I think that all this mess I think <laughs> that I feel right now is just part of this unlearning of expectations that never served us in the first place. Um, And then the commitment um, is more to each other than ever before, despite like all of these pressures like that. That's where it really comes home for me is like, oh, while it's while it's all great, like it's so easy to be in community with each other. And it's when, boom, things start getting really uncomfortable when I think it matters the most to see who sticks around. Yeah. So you were going to talk a little bit about before I, I diverted you to that tangent. Thank you very much for for going so in depth into that. Um, you were going to talk about 
um, what maybe some of the qualities are of Indian culture and Indian people that allow um, more collaborative projects. And I guess when I say more collaborative projects, I'm thinking like I saw vast people-made water harvesting systems covering, you know, hundreds or thousands of villages, like these vast people getting together projects that I, w- I just was like, how in the U.S. <laughs> could you ever see everybody getting out and working together selflessly, tirelessly for the good of the whole it seems like there's individuals that have that capacity, but the cultural story is the individual pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, the American dream. So, you know, what what can we learn from the capacity of places like India or other countries for people to get together? Is there anything that's transferable? That's the other question. Is there anything transferable? Like, is there is do we have the capacity to do that? Or is that only from a culture that has thousands of years of intact, unbroken story to tap into. Hmm. For me, some of the threads that I was talking about previously come up again where, um, the sense of family is really different. And I don't quite know how to explain it. It's just you and, you know, again, I'm a rebellious Indian person. So um, so there's obviously like a wide range. But even for me, I would say that there'll be this this somebody in the family, right? Whether they're like super directly related or not, where you're just like, oh man, that person sucks. I really don't want to be around them. But there's still this, I think, I guess here's what I'm going to attribute it to. It's this acceptance of a much, like much more diverse and varied spectrum of human experience that is just accepted, you know, as part of like, oh, this this too is possible. And I think as someone who grew up in India and traveled in India and was super protected initially and then sought some of my own experiences, even as an Indian person, I would constantly be humbled in that, I, you know, living in Bombay and then seeing the squalor with which some people, in which some people were living, yet with so much dignity, you know, like the... The red light area that I visited just this one time is the worst, like in my experience, was such a hard place to be. And yet some of those women who greeted us had just this zest and uh, vibrancy for life that I couldn't comprehend. But I had to integrate that that was their story and that was their reality. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. And I have so much to learn. And then you know, so this this real like depth of um, what some of us would find really despairing, and then this you know multi billion dollar like <laughs> business people, and then sometimes even you would see like oh this this person who doesn't have their arms like really graphic like really 
potent stuff in the train station. Like I've actually seen this. I, I love taking photographs and I obviously didn't take this, but you know, this high rise in the back and then this person without appendages, like in, in the foreground, like, it's just, again, like my brain and my heart would like have to be like, Oh, I'm needing to stretch to like accept that all of this is part of life. Um, and then, within that choose my role and my path within it right so there's that and in the in the personal level it's like you know this notion that things aren't unidimensional maybe the example I'll use is that you know there's a lot more flexibility um, where people are like yeah we we follow the rules and all of this stuff but then there's this buffer zone, this gray, this gray area where people kind of negotiate with, I think, a lot more flexibility. And um, and I think how that manifests in terms of being able to work together is less of this rigidity of expectations that things are going to be like, you know, very uh, controlled or like very um, in one particular way. So there's just kind of this. So you're saying in the U.S., there's just a much narrower view of what's okay and of who's okay and how you can be and how you can act. And we just have a much tighter box about what is acceptable. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I just want to say, um, we, uh, I went to Mumbai and my son and I, we went on, you know, a slum tour, basically, mm-hmm. where there's a mm-hmm. there's a Dairavi slum. There's a you know organization within the neighborhood that takes people that are just like, hey, I'm in Mumbai. Let's go and take a you know a walking tour and going through and seeing like we walk through this whole industrial area where all the people that are collecting all the recycling, all the plastics are bringing it to this area. And then there's people with machetes whacking it down into small little pieces. And then they're like cooking it and melting it down into new plastic material. And I mean, there's no, you know, that kind of thing happening in the U S I mean, there would be all sorts of machines and protection, but here's people in their, you know, flip flops and no shirt and, all the dust and there's the wastewater running down through the center of these little alleys and there's people living right there and everything's like stacked on top of each other. Um, and, and the people that were there were like, just looked like they were people going about their lives. They, they didn't necessarily look miserable. I mean, they're just talking to each other and having conversations and just people doing what they do. Um, so there's a little bit of, I mean, I understand like, like in, in India, you have to sort of hold that, like that's a, that's a thing right there that exists. And, um, and then there's a high rise. And so, yeah, you have to, you have to be able to accept a lot more in your daily reality of what is okay. Like you, like, I understand when you're saying the multidimensional, like you have to be more multidimensional if you're like, that's not okay, that doesn't work for me, then you'll just go crazy. Like you can't deal with that much before your eyes and society all, all in one place. So, so what's the key here? You know, what, what can the U S learn? I mean, what can we learn? How can people break out of the very small constriction of power structures? You know, not to say that India doesn't have his own power structure issues. I mean, casteism 
is alive and well, um, Mm -hmm. even though not on an official level, I certainly witnessed that. And I'm sure you wouldn't, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know about that too. So I feel like painting intersections is an actual action meant to like shift the perceptions of a whole culture. Like what's the smallest thing we can do to actually change the culture in an area to sort of tip it towards a lot of these other effects of, like you said, suddenly you meet your neighbors, oh, this elderly person down the block needs help with this and you need childcare and maybe you can have some sort of exchange. And that to me is it, you know, it's those relationships that make it, make us want to even strive for it. Like, I don't think I would be as invested in this if I didn't have relationships of love and care and support. You know what I mean? Like, if it were just me and whatever, even if I had a bunch of wealth, if I didn't have something, like if I wasn't tethered to relationships that are valuable, I really wouldn't care. I wouldn't make good decisions either. Thank you, Reedy, so much for going on this little journey of story here spanning the continents and the histories and um uh it's made me really thoughtful and uh i really just appreciate you taking time here. thanks for having me andrew thank you so much for tuning in to earth repair radio i'm andrew millison and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com